0: to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Grant Gillum, co-founder and managing partner of 1031. 1031 is a venture capital firm which invests in the leading Bitcoin native companies who are building the infrastructure for a hyper-Bitcoinized future. Grant comes from a traditional private equity background and has brought a ton of high level experience with him to this new endeavor. However, While Grant and the team at 1031 recognize the enormous opportunity which investing in early stage Bitcoin-only companies represents, they're also aware of the necessity to think differently about investing when doing so in a Bitcoin-denominated world. In my opinion, it is their willingness to do so while also aligning with and supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem more broadly that will lead to their continued long-term success. Enjoy. Well, Grant, uh, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to having this chat with you. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. So I think uh, maybe a lot of hardcore Bitcoiners are familiar with 1031. You guys have come on the scene and partnered up with some uh, notable Bitcoiners and are doing some cool stuff, investing in some uh, popular and and well-known companies. But why don't you give me, uh, we start off with the background story of you and Bitcoin and then how 1031 Came about, and what your approach is to what you're doing?
1: Yeah, you know, I um, I got into Bitcoin, um, you know, a number of years ago. I was I was lurking behind the scenes, um, learning as much as I could. You know, I I think I first interacted with it back in 2013, 2014, when I was I was living in New York City. I was um, living downtown in the financial district. <laughs> And I would commute every every day to work. Uh, on the way to to Midtown, I'd walk by the uh, New York Stock Exchange, and right next to the the New York Stock Exchange, there was a a Bitcoin Center uh, that I would walk by every single day. Um, you know, like many of us, I dismissed it out of the gate, and but I would see it every single day, and I always wondered, you know, what is this? I don't know what it is, but most likely it seems like a scam to me um <laughs> but i you know i'm i'm happy that i uh i did experience it back then because you know enough pattern recognition i i did decide to look into it you know i was a i was a electrical engineer in college um i took some programming i took took some cryptography and so i think i was you know i, I minored in math i was i was primed for i think being curious about it just from a, an engineering and technical perspective. And so when I saw enough um, art- articles in Wired Magazine and, and others, I, I finally took a deeper dive and uh, came across uh, Nick Zabo and some of the stuff he was writing. And, and that's really when my mind was blown. Um, and um, from, from that point on, I, I really just started consuming as much as I could. Like many of us, I couldn't get enough. Um, and so I did that for uh, years and years, just lurking behind the scenes, trying to learn, trying to to see what you know, what would come of this new technology. So that was my origin story to Bitcoin. Right.
0: And well, before we get into 1031, what was it about, like what intrigued you the most about Bitcoin? I mean, I pulled uh, a quote from the website, and part of your mission is to facilitate the freedom of mankind through individual sovereignty, which not only is a fairly lofty goal but uh, you know is one that appeals to a lot of people and one of the reasons why Bitcoin uh, is interesting to people because maybe they feel that freedom and sovereignty is something that's been diminished in in certain respects in in the world today and uh, you know I'm just wondering what it was about Bitcoin that either appeal to you for that reason, or maybe even awaken, you know, those sorts of thoughts in your mind?
1: You know, I think what really captured me initially was this whole idea of social scalability that Nick Zabo talked about and realizing that there would be this new technology that could allow for the coordination of humans uh, across borders without uh, the reliance on a trusted third party. And a lot of that um, principle really is, is rooted in ha- allowing for humans to have individual freedoms and sovereignty, um, not just over their money, but in, over all courses of their lives. So for us, as as we thought about what are we trying to help facilitate with 1031 i mean that was the underlying mission of of what makes this technology so special
0: right and so bring me to 1031 i understand you were making some you know private investments in the space what was the genesis story of 1031. so you know i I was an investor
1: professionally for about 15 years. I was working in New York City for a large private equity firm, one of the largest and most successful private equity firms globally. Um, Something that I I really enjoyed doing, just being an investor, um, learning about businesses, um, building relationships with the teams that we supported, helping them grow and really seeing the full life cycle of investing, that's just something that's that's core to what interests me. Uh, and, and a lot of that is just built on my desire for um, strong relationships and, and working with those types of teams over a long period of time. Um, and as a result, I was very interested just investing in general. Um, and so for, the better part of um, the last uh, six or seven years, I've been investing on the side in early stage technology companies, um, not not Bitcoin related companies, but but everything that piqued my interest um, and really cut my teeth and started to learn the craft of, of early stage investing that way, invested in somewhere between 80 and 100 different companies. And at the outset of 2020, right when COVID was starting to, to show its teeth, I went home where I grew up in Kentucky, took my family down there. We spent some time with, with my parents and, and some of my uh, broader family. And that's when I had come across the opportunity to invest in Unchained Capital, just on a personal basis. Uh, I, by that time, I'd already been doing a lot of angel investing, as I said, and had already been Uh, working professionally as an investor for a long period of time. But at the same time, I was already several years deep into having this passion for Bitcoin. And so when I met the team at Unchained, and I remember quite vividly being in my childhood bedroom um, at the start of COVID with kids' trophies in the background and doing doing a Zoom call with those guys, um, to me, it was a light bulb moment where... I thought you know this is exactly what I want to be doing is is supporting all of these great bitcoin companies that I had already learned to you know to know and 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 love and and try to contribute to a space that I was incredibly passionate about and devote the skills and experiences that I developed over the last 15 years and so that was that was really the the seeds of 1031 being planted right then because um you know at the time it was just i was considering how can i do this personally i didn't have any visions of of creating an investment platform where we could have a bit more um, financial wherewithal to support the ecosystem in a a bigger way but i just wanted to contribute to the space and eventually that led to uh, my cousin and i who he and i were doing this at the same time um we we started just building more relationships with people in the space and looking for more ways to support great bitcoin companies that were doing what we believe to be really important things and especially in a in a environment where at the very early days of covid there there wasn't as much capital around as as there is today and uh, even in a world of infinite liquidity today and over the last you know decade you know decade plus Um, there hasn't been as much capital directed to the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so that really was, as we started to build more relationships, uh, talk to more founders, and start investing in more companies, it was really what we saw as the the problem statement was there wasn't enough aligned capital um, trying to support the ecosystem. And that was what we wanted to help alleviate. Right.
0: How did you connect with the guys at Unchained? was that just a happenstance encounter? Um,
1: I was doing a lot of investing on AngelList. And I think at, uh, the early days of, um, 2020, Corey at Swan was running his syndicate and, um, I was chatting with him, you know, we ended up investing, uh, in their business as well. And, Uh, I got connected to to Joe and Parker at Unchained and that's how that dialogue
0: started. Right. You know, so, you know, the mission I read a few minutes ago, I mean, it's so palpable in the Bitcoin space that that drives so much greater, as you said, alignment or passion or interest in what's going on here, right? It's like whether you're a programmer, an entrepreneur, an investor, it's not like you're just investing in in, in another SaaS business that you hope to have an exit from in five years or something, right? Like there's People feel the gravity of what's on the line here, not only in in terms of the potential, which is massive, as we all know, but also just, I mean, not only just the financial potential, but the necessity for this thing to succeed. You know, for what it means for you know humanity and freedom and those sorts of things. I mean, what's the difference for you uh, between having invested in, or some of the differences, or primary difference between having invested in like being a regular investor, for lack of a better term in your prior career to now being an investor in something that I presume is there's a, there's a lot more passion and motivation behind your work.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I guess when you are, um, working in a field that you feel very passionate about it, it, it ends up not becoming work. Um, this is, this is something that, I truly believe in. It's something that I want to do for purposes of my family um, because I want to help create a world that, um, that I, I want my children to grow up in. But as it relates to, you know, what are some of the differences that I've seen? I mean, actually, I would sort of twist it around and say, you know, because I, I come from um, the large cap private equity buyout environment where I was investing on average $500 million of equity into any given deal. These were all multi-billion dollar companies that had been around for decades. And for us, it was about, you know, how do we find sustainable businesses that we can invest in over the long term? So our approach was always a longer term approach. And in fact, I it, at the last several years of the firm I was at, I was helping lead an even longer duration private equity fund where we weren't looking at five to seven year investments. We were looking at seven to 10 or 15 year investments. And so for us, we were always thinking about technology and disruption and how can we um, support businesses that will hopefully have a sustainable business model over the long term. And, And one of the things I've thought about is. All right, that was my my old life investing in what is pretty much at the exact opposite end of the spectrum is VC, um, where VC is at the, the very early stage of of investing in companies. And most of the time, these aren't companies that have generated much in the way of, of revenues or profits. Um, but I actually think coming into this space with a private equity background, rather than a VC background is there's some really interesting features of that because I think that as we move towards a world that has um, um, more and more of a, a Bitcoin orientation, um, that it's actually going to bring back the importance of cash flow investing um, in a world of infinite liquidity that we've had over the last couple decades. The Fiat VC model has looked like one where, um, you know, you invest in these hyper growth companies that are burning cash that have this protocol of just growth at all cost, And, and don't really worry about um, creating a sound business model out of the gate. It's just, you know, scale as rapidly as you can. And then one day you might turn a profitability dial, or maybe you, don't, you never have to worry about that. And you can just look to... Exit um, at some point in time. Um, I think in a in a Bitcoin oriented world, um, you know, you won't have that same dynamic. And in in private equity, we were very much focused on cash flow. It was looking at um, you know your return on invested capital, how much cash can can a business generate. And I think there's going to be a lot of similarities to that when you look at um, in early stage investing in the Bitcoin world. Now, for sure, and, and we've already seen it because we've, you know, we've backed um, a number of companies, a lot of these early stage Bitcoin companies will look like traditional um, VC profiles where they're burning cash initially, they are hyper growth. I mean, this is, a, this is a, um, an industry that's going to have secular tailwinds for a long period of time. Um, But we've also seen instances where there are companies that can actually generate profits a lot earlier than you might expect. Uh, We've even had one that has uh, not only um, been able to accrue Bitcoin on its balance sheet and be profitable, but already paid out a dividend in Bitcoin. And so I think that there's going to be some interesting business models that sort of go in the face of what you might expect from traditional VC investing. And so that in a way is something that I think is actually somewhat similar to what I've seen in the uh, you know my my historical investing background,
0: right. And so, would you say the primary differentiating factor between traditional VC and and private equity is you know looking for profitability and cash flow and a longer term you know commitment or horizon on the investment?
1: Um, that that for sure, just having a cash flow focus would be one big differentiator i mean i think you can you can also argue that traditional vc take a very long-term approach because they're thinking years and years ahead on you know what technology trends are going to help shape the future so i don't want to discount that i do think that um often traditional venture capital firms have been corrupted by the fiat system and so in reality, I think a lot of times what we see are very high time preference approaches to the way that they invest and the way that they pursue you know, fiat dollar gains from their investors or from their investments and you know as an investor, some people might say, well there's nothing wrong with with chasing dollar gains because that's what investors are sp- supposed to do but I think that we're moving towards a system where, um, you know, Bitcoin obviously is is this this new system that um, is a system of truth. It's a system of integrity. Um, I think under a Bitcoin-oriented world, we're going to um, shift towards a model that the the true investors that um, pursue lower time preference approaches, are going to be rewarded over you know over a longer period of time and so for us everything that we've done is is try to align ourselves as much as we can with the ethos of bitcoin from how we named our our company what we've named the funds that we're investing out of and and various other things that we've done it's it's effectively we've looked at what are the traditional fiat vcs doing and we just try to do the opposite in almost every single way
0: <laughs> yeah you know, it's it seems to be such a good heuristic to kind of like, what would Bitcoin do? You know, how do you align with the ethos of Bitcoin? Whether, again, whatever angle you're kind of attacking it from, whether it be an investor, an entrepreneur, a, a programmer, a content creator, like, how do you represent the ethos of Bitcoin? And if you can do that with high fidelity and integrity, you're probably going to, it's probably going to work out pretty good for you. You know, I lived in, um, Chi- in Shanghai up until 2018, and I feel like there, was like so emblematic of that dynamic you're referring to where it's growth at all costs there's basically infinite capital to support that enterprise and you just get this ferocious competition between the top 2 or 3 uh, companies in whatever space and from the c- consumer point of view it was wonderful because like there's so much price competition and so much you know they're, they're they're competing on features and all that kind of stuff so you get you know really great product and service for really low cost but some, you know, someone's going to lose. Everyone's going to lose spectacularly, and maybe someone's going to lose. Uh, someone's going to win spectacularly, or all will lose if, if you know, it was just a complete perversion of the market. And, you know, that's an, something I think about a lot is, as do a lot of Bitcoiners. But just how much has false and loose money perpetuated and erected a landscape of companies? That wouldn't exist otherwise that couldn't exist in a more honest monetary standard you know and like i think there's i think the landscape will change dramatically under bitcoin and as you wrote in in one of your pieces you know when you're denominating things in bitcoin then it's much harder to have that flashy super high growth figure right that's you know like to that is common in, in today's vc investing world and you have to emphasize or let let's say there's a natural emphasis that shifts to sats flow rather than just growth value growth at all costs. I wonder what your like what's your opinion on how perverted things are today and how you see them changing as we move into a more hyper bitcoinized world.
1: Yeah, I I think it uh things have have really swung to the wrong end of the spectrum which I I think eventually they will shift back um, you know what I what I wrote about in the piece was if we move towards a more bitcoin oriented world which most bitcoiners will agree that that we all think we are um, that this world of infinite liquidity is, is not going to be there anymore that will distort not just pricing mechanisms but uh, in, in not just the uh, direction of financial capital, but it's coordination of of human capital and human energy, uh, and um, I think we'll move. You know, it, it's it's um, it's absolutely critical that we we build an economic um, system on top of a stable ba- based foundation of you know sound money and. When we do that, and we're in a, a world where Bitcoin is the the base monetary measurement for value that helps coordinate economic and monetary activity, people will start to realize that um, it is um, a lot easier to earn Sats today than it will be to earn the same amount of Sats tomorrow. Um, the, the other way that that I that I put it in the piece was to earn the same amount of sats tomorrow that you will, that you will, that you could earn today, it's going to require more work. And so what it ends up doing is it really shines a light on the opportunity cost of time and how do you assess, um, risk relative to if you have an opportunity to buy Bitcoin today, to earn Bitcoin today, to generate Bitcoin profits, and you decide to defer that in the hopes of generating more in the future, um, you have to also understand that it's going to be harder to earn that in the future. And so it's really going to shape this idea of how how do we all spend our time and what's the right opportunity cost and how do you think about that from a sats flow perspective and uh, i think as a result that is going to uh, mean that companies individuals investors everyone's going th- to think about um, sats flows in, in a way that perhaps is, is not obvious to most people today but um i think that just means that even though we're all looking at um a longer term approach to creating value and having a low time preference there also is this draw towards is it isn't it an acceptable um opportunity cost is it acceptable um risk to take relative to what you you could have today
0: right you know i love the visualization that i guess is now possible you know, because cash flow has always been obviously a, a term and an important consideration in businesses uh, but you know now with the architecture of bitcoin and what it permits you can actually stream money now right I mean, especially with the lightning network so you know the visual for me is like how do you how do you get more flow like constant flow i know in businesses like you know there's different payment periods and stuff like that but podcasting 2.0 which we've been doing a lot of work on at ct is one example of that where you're literally generating a flow like it's happening in a streaming uh, fashion. And in the future, you know, it just seems like, you know, you can, you can imagine a corporate boardroom where like there's a literal visualization of like a, a river type of flowing, but that sats, right? And you're trying to increase the volume of that flow. And that's the one, one of the primary organizational objectives. Um, you mentioned that in 2020, not many people were looking at Bitcoin. And I think we all appreciate that there's a lot of shiny noise outside of Bitcoin and crypto and web three and all of that, what we probably would consider nonsense and that for whatever reason is more attractive to big VC capital. Uh, and that Bitcoin has kind of flown under the radar for that capital for many years. It seems boring. It seems rudimentary. It seems uh, first generation, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if it's just me because I'm too close to this stuff or if it's genuinely beginning to change, but it, it seems like, that is rapidly shifting and people are starting to look at this differently and understand it better. And as a result, capital is, is really starting to flow in. And obviously what you guys are doing is emblem is an example of that. What's your impression about how the perception of Bitcoin and investing in Bitcoin companies has changed over just the last two years?
1: For sure. There's, there's uh, been more interest in it. Um, you know, that, that will come with um, you know, uh, a turn in the markets, uh, obviously, at the very early days of 2020, it was it was a, it was a very um, tough time for investors to be thinking about allocating capital. But, you know, of course, that's actually oftentimes the best time to be looking at uh, investing your capital. But we have seen, um, for sure, an increased interest from institutions. I, I would still argue we are incredibly early and that most institutional investors, even most VC funds don't really understand Bitcoin. And that is why there's such a dramatic imbalance in the capital that's directed elsewhere to the capital that's directed towards the Bitcoin ecosystem. But I can say that people are starting to wake up and we have, um, you know, we have some supporters of ours, uh, partners, financial partners that are real institutional names. You know, we, we, we have discussions with lots of different types of groups. Um, some of the early adopters I would say would be a more open-minded family offices that, that really think about, um, preserving wealth and investing their capital over a much longer time period than even some of the traditional funds do. So we've, we've seen a lot of interest from those types of groups. But even on the university endowment side there, you know, there would be, I think, more involvement than than people realize from that end. You know, we've had discussions with some that are actually holding Bitcoin themselves, holding, unfortunately, other crypto assets too, but um, they're starting to really think about this space. Um, and, you know, we're, we're excited about the fact that more capital is coming in because this is a open monetary network, and the more that comes in to um, support the ecosystem, it, it benefits everyone. And so, I think um, there has been a dramatic shift. Um, it still is very early because oftentimes when we we have discussions, uh, very frequently we get these types of responses, like um, you know, well, we we we're interested in the space, but you know, we're, we're sort of fully deployed in the, the quote unquote crypto space or we're focusing all of our time on uh, Web3 and DeFi or another frequent one is, you know, we, we, we really like the innovation happening in this space, but we don't want to take a point of view on any individual cryptocurrency. We'd rather be crypto agnostic and so that's the approach we're taking. So I'd say, by and large, we still have a lot, uh, a long way to go, but there are some encouraging signs. And, you know, I guess just as a, another example, you know, the people we have as investors, they're all Bitcoiners. We, we, we haven't um, really had any groups come in that um, are taking a flyer on Bitcoin. I think what you see is actually groups, whether it's institutions or individuals, they sort of see that there might be something in this ecosystem the broader crypto space. And interestingly, they're willing to just take a flyer on crypto. Um, they they sort of dismiss Bitcoin. Um, the people who are investing in this space, they've already gotten to the understanding of, well, there's there's really something here with Bitcoin and they have the conviction, and then they, they they put their financial capital to work in that space. You don't really see too many people that just decide, well, you know, I'm going to take a flyer on going Bitcoin only. You have to find the people who sort of philosophically, ideologically, have, have gotten, have done a, a deeper dive to understand the space that, that decide to um, focus on on this ecosystem.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems to me, you know, being as early as you are, in this type of space and doing what you guys are doing and integrating with the community and building the connections and all that kind of stuff. I mean, when you started this, you know, you went from individual angel investing, you said, Hey, let's, let's formalize this a bit and, and do a bit more. I mean, how do you see this playing out as you kind of hitch your boat to a rocket ship effectively? You know, if, if the thesis that we all hold is right about Bitcoin and you're, you know, you're 1031 is one of the initial, uh, firms that's investing in the space. And there's probably going to be a lot of really big winners. I mean, how has your perception or your ambition for this enterprise changed? If at all, maybe you, you had large ambitions at the beginning, but like, what do you, how do you see this playing out as, as time goes by?
1: Yeah, well, we, when we, um, when we first started making with my cousin and I, we first started making the investments personally the ambition wasn't to go create an investment platform. Um, We just wanted to support the ecosystem in a small way. And even at the early early days, we were trying to decide how can we best really align ourselves with the space and, and do it in a way that was authentic. And so, you know, we were, we initially were making those investments personally, Uh, Then we started passing around the hat to friends and family to just give ourselves a bit more capital, a bit more firepower to support great companies. And even then there wasn't this ambition. Let's go create a a big investment platform. We just, we realized we're sort of a a very tiny fish. Um, But maybe there's interesting things we can do to, to help support the space. And so one of the first things we did was come up with this idea of how can we give back to the ecosystem? Um, We had seen that there were some of these giant institutions that were making developer grants, Um, you know, seeing the likes of what HRF was doing as well was just really inspiring. And of course that when you see what they do, it really brings it home to show why does this entire space matter? And so we thought, You know, at the very early days, well, we're we're relatively small, but maybe we can just give back to the space and maybe we can do it in a way that um, has an impact and inspires others to think about what they can be doing, too. And so we were we were thinking if we come up with this recurring grant model where we can devote a portion of our management fees from this tiny little first fund um, to give back to the space. Maybe that will inspire other funds to do the same. Um, and then really over the last couple of years, as our platform has continued to grow, it's just all been organic. Uh, and so I think that will be, um, you know, that that's really our approach is just block by block. How do we continue to execute with the goal and the vision of Bitcoin in mind? and to us that's most important i'm not necessarily concerned about you know how can we create 1031 to be some huge institution i'm just more focused on i'm a bitcoiner the other members of our team are bitcoiners we want to support great bitcoin companies let's just keep doing that um and so i I think you, if you look at the potential of this space, I think it's 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 absolutely massive. Um, we're moving towards a world we firmly believe where Bitcoin is going to play an increasingly important role um, in in the global economy. It's going to serve as the world reserve asset. It will be the standard upon which um, ec- economic and, and monetary activity is is coordinated and. As a result, we think every single person, every company, every institution eventually will be holding Bitcoin and they're going to need not just Bitcoin, but the infrastructure that um, is, is built around it. And I think if you are investing in and trying to help support infrastructure that is being built with an end market of potentially everybody, then there's huge asymmetry there. Um, whether it's custody, um, you know, security services, uh, business to business services, consumer facing applications. I mean, we when we look at the investable landscape, we don't try to, um, you know, pick and choose where where we think the most interesting spots are. We think everything is interesting, and for us. We want to find businesses that are producing products and services that holders of Bitcoin will eventually want, because that's what we think everyone is eventually going to be.
0: Yeah. It's so crazy to think that because the thing that we're discussing here is a new form of money, a new foundational value exchange base layer, let's say, as you say, like, everyone is going to need to plug in in some capacity, which means a hell of a lot of new infrastructure is going to be built out to facilitate that. I mean, it just gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, you want to, I think you're, you have one fund right now. Is it the low-time preference fund? Yeah,
1: our, our funds are called uh, the low-time preference funds. Um, so you know, The two. first one was, was more the, the friends and family vehicle, as, as what we like to say was a a proof of concept uh and and then we have a second one which is just low time preference fund too
0: right what's the process of you know building those funds in terms of how you determine check size in terms of how you solicit uh you know investors like explain that to to me a little bit
1: yeah so um you know this is uh this is a world that i'm very much uh Familiar with in terms of just legacy fiat fund structures, unfortunately, this is one of the the most traditional things that we're doing at ten thirty one relative to um, everything else, which is our mindset is how can we swish things up from the traditional you know fiat vC kind of institutional investor perspective but Unfortunately, we do have to deal with traditional regulatory requirements and and that sort of thing. But as it relates to, you know, how do you construct a portfolio and how do you invest in check size? I mean, ultimately, that's um, um, dependent on the amount of capital that you have to invest and thinking about managing risk in in a way that is prudent. Uh, And so, you know, you have fiduciary duties to be a steward of that capital. Uh, in an appropriate way, uh, while also trying to generate the most attractive risk-adjusted returns that you can. Um, and so for us, I mean, we we think a lot about uh, concentration of the investments that we do make and and obviously also just our conviction in the investments in the companies and ultimately the, the founders that we're partnering with. Um, you know, some companies that that we've partnered with are some of the the bigger, more established brand name type of Bitcoin companies, where um, there's more history of of operating even through some of the, the prior cycles, and um, companies that have established um, customer bases and financial models. Um, whereas some of the others are up and comers, many that that people in this space would be familiar with, um, but are still operating at very early stages where there's, um, higher risk, uh, at, at those stages. So you have to think about that as well. Um, but then some of the other things that we're trying to do is support companies that may not be as obviously considered Bitcoin companies, but we do think that, um, there's going to be a wave of businesses that pivot into Bitcoin, um, start to, uh, operate on a Bitcoin standard, and there's interesting ways for us to support companies that are doing that as well e- everything that we're doing is is meant to be investing and supporting uh, companies that are focused exclusively on bitcoin, but um, you know you you find different flavors of that depending on um, the stage that the company's in
0: right and from the perspective of fund investors like what is generally either your pitch or their understanding of what they're getting involved in here? Like, is there certain terms that they're, you know, considering locked in for? Like, what, what how do you make the pitch to potential investors?
1: Yeah, I, I think the right way to, to think about it is that for sure, these are very long-term oriented investments. Um, you know, we're not in this to make a quick flip on some investment and hopefully realize returns, um, uh, very quickly. It's, it's more about how can we help, um, support and, and help the founders and companies that are building in the space, create this, this entire ecosystem around it. And VC and even private equity investing, typically you're used to investing in a fund and not seeing any capital for years and years. Um, that likely is to, to be the case. In this space, too, Um, you know, we think that every industry, every company over time is going to be forced to adapt to Bitcoin in some way or another. Um, And most likely, a lot of them, these legacy and incumbent players are going to be forced to buy that capability uh, rather than build it themselves. It's very difficult. Um, Most most people in the space right now will know that every Bitcoin company is hiring. It's not exactly easy to, um, to find more and more people and, and bring them into the space. Unfortunately, that's one of the big challenges is how can we attract more uh, technologists and other, other people to contribute their skills and experiences into the space. But for sure, right now, there's a big bottleneck of talent. And as a result, I think that there likely will be a flurry of M&A activity over the years uh, as some of these legacy players are forced to just figure out how can they how can they acquire that talent themselves and i'm sure that that might mean that there will be um monetization events um you know over some you know several year time period but also as we all know um bitcoiners often tend to be iconoclasts and they like to go against the grain and a lot of them aren't gonna wanna sell out to the man, aren't gonna wanna sell out to a JP Morgan or whoever it is. So I do think that um, we're going to have a lot of new leading institutions that were Bitcoin native from the beginning. And for that, uh, you know, our approach is, we wanna back these companies for the long haul. And that, that means supporting them over, you know, years and years and years, and not necessarily having to rely on an exit to some legacy player we we like the idea of um continuing to have equity ownership in these businesses and we think as um you know these companies mature there'll be more bitcoin companies that start to um generate um positive sats flows accrue bitcoin on their balance sheet and that will afford them the opportunity to uh, eventually pay out dividends in bitcoin to um you know their are equity holders
0: yeah and I, I ask these questions uh just because i'm you know not very uh, you know informed on the mechanics of how the how all this works but does that mean like the fund is basically open-ended in terms of term length like it, it can go on forever it's it's totally open-ended and then furthermore like an investor if they want to exit the fund is that an option and how does that work if so
1: Yeah, it's, it's probably better for me just to talk in generalities rather than about our specific fund, but in general, um, in a private equity or a venture capital fund, these are closed funds where you typically, you, you typically agree for, um, some defined investment period and some defined fund life. Oftentimes that's 10 years, uh, can be, can be longer. Um, and, uh, a fund manager will invest the cap, the, the capital over, you know, the initial few years, and then over the subsequent several years, um, you know, they help, uh, those companies grow and, and there's a, the maturation period of the investments. And over that period, some of them might lead to monetization. Some of them at the end of the fund life are still outstanding. Um it's usually the case um, during uh, a fund life that it's not possible for individual investors in the fund to uh, withdraw their capital because these are private illiquid company Uh, equity that's being held in the underlying asset, as opposed to say a a hedge fund where, you know, you often have the ability to um, withdraw your capital from those that just, oftentimes some notice period so that the fund has time to liquidate some of its positions. But unfortunately, in in this type of ecosystem, oftentimes that's, that's not the case. But typically, at the end of the fund life, you usually have some option of either um, trying to monetize any outstanding equity stakes that you have at the time, um, often some sort of secondary sale, or you could look to um distribute the remaining equity positions that you have in kind to your underlying investors uh, or you could just look for an extension of the fund life and get approval from your investors to extend from say 10 years to another year another another couple years and i would say oftentimes that's that's what you end up seeing.
0: right um do you guys have a system like i know there's certain industries and pieces of the infrastructure mix that you guys are most interested in But when you actually zero in on potential companies in those, uh, areas, you have a process that you go through to assess, you know, the team and the technology and the industry and all all that kind of stuff. And if so, what does it look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we do for sure. Um, you know, every, every day we're trying to be more sophisticated than we were the day before. Um, you know, I, I come at this from having 15 years of, uh, professional uh, investment experience and so there are um you know some general guidelines as to how you think about um building relationships with teams and diligencing the attractiveness of an opportunity that you see and really trying to develop a thesis um as to how can you partner with a company over the next um, year, you know, several years, decade plus to come. Um, every situation is different. You know, you 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 can have an idea of what are the key criteria that you want to look at to assess any any investment opportunity. I mean, that those are just as basic as uh, dynamics with a team, looking at an industry, you know, sub verticals within that space, and the competitive uh, dynamics um, that exists at the time and what potential opportunities and threats there are for new entrances, new entrants, um, looking at a business model, looking at all the financials, uh, or KPIs that exist for a business. Uh, a lot of that can be standardized, but it's always a bespoke suit in terms of how do you craft a partnership with a company and agree with the founders, um, what a, what a partnership would look like, um, between, um, them and you. And I'd say in that regard, um, there's, there's not a standard playbook. I mean, it's, it's very much, um, suited to, to each situation, but in my experience, um, you know, what, what we're really talking about here is investment judgment and, any individual and every institution, you know, there can be different approaches to investment philosophy. Um, you know, I one of my favorite things about my last firm was just seeing the wisdom that uh, was around the table every single day at this, you know, large private equity firm with um, investors that have had been in the space for decades. And what was really interesting to see was that, there was a diversity of thought and approaches around what makes a good investor. And uh, each one of them had different approaches. And so, for example, one of them, um, you know, used to say only invest in and buy the highest quality businesses, no matter what space, just focus on best of the best. And if you do that, then you're most likely not going to, lose money that often and then as a result the overall portfolio returns that you have um you know will be good and you know there, i there's definite merit to that uh to that approach another guy had um this philosophy of um there's there's a price for any business it doesn't matter whether it's a high quality business or a low quality business there's always a price, so it's always about buying right, and you know the, there's there's definitely some merit to that. And there, you know there was an, another guy that I really respected, which is tended to be the philosophy that I gravitated towards, which was the key to being a successful investor is independent thought, and I think you find that a lot with people who are in the Bitcoin space, which um, you know are characterized by hat. Of having an open enough mind to consider, well, what if, what if the whole system that we've been operating under um, is not the ideal one, and what if there was a new um, money that could be that, that could form the base layer of society? Um, and, and so, I think there is an open mindedness of people that have found themselves in this space, and you know, this particular investor used to say. Um, the key to investing is independent thought. It's either having a perspective on something that um, most others do not, or maybe you have the same information as someone else, but you see it differently from someone else. Or maybe you're just there early. Maybe you got information before someone else did, or you developed a perspective before someone else did. So um, I think investment judgment can come down to, you know, every individual investor and and what works for them. Um, and, and that's, uh, I think, um, you know, something that you'll see will be different for every investor. Every fund will take a
0: different approach. Yeah. You know, I agree with that, uh, observation about independent thought, but I think also oftentimes what comes with someone who, has the disposition to be an independent thinker is a certain amount of disagreeableness and i think that's certainly the case in in bitcoin land and then you layer on the bitcoin is known as fuck you money right and part of that is because it's money that nobody can cut off your access to you're completely sovereign over it and i'm wondering uh well two things one when you encounter founders you know are there certain traits like does that show up does that disagreeableness show up and how do you guys uh, encounter or, or get over that? Or are there specific traits in founders that you like to see or, or that you've been put off by? Uh, and also, like, has it been the case yet within 1031 uh, where you disagree on an investment? And how do you settle those disagreements and move forward?
1: Yeah, okay. well, a couple of questions. I mean, first, uh, I'll answer the last one to say for sure there have been Uh, disagreements on investments and companies. Uh, And I think that's a good thing. We don't want to have complete uniformity on all thoughts. We want to uh, have diversity of thought and have members of the team challenge each other because that's the only way that we improve our decision-making ability. You know, as it relates to, you know, how do we resolve those types of discussions uh, you know, it's, I'll just say that um, generally what we like to have is, is, is consensus. Now, what does that mean? How, how do you specifically define it? You know, it's, it's sort of soft, um, more of a, 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 a subjective rather than objective. Um, but uh, we certainly have had those types of cases and we learn from them um, as we see um, the outcomes of, of some of those decisions, um, as it relates to what we see in founders, um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is as we were um, earlier in our journey of just trying to support what we believe to be, um, you know, interesting interesting people and companies that were doing important things for the space. We we did this look back and at that time we had made somewhere between six and eight investments. And I just sort of I noticed at the time, I said, Well, you know, you oftentimes find these people who are building in the space that are very mission-driven. You know, they are in it. It's it's not about how can they make a lot of money for themselves. Of course, people are economically driven, but um you, you consistently find people who are not just doing it for the money they're doing it f- actually more importantly for for um trying like we said earlier trying to create a better world uh yeah. and trying to create um um businesses that are necessary to help usher in this this transition to hyper bitcoinization and so when we we looked back and at the time we had six or eight different investments And I looked at the portfolio and I said, all right, let's, let's look at these founders, which ones of them are mission driven versus perhaps monetization driven. And it's probably unfair. It was probably unfair to characterize, even suggest that someone was monetization driven, but you could sort of see that, um, there were clear cases where people were in it for the mission and you could, you could see that from, um, their ambition to continue to build in the face of very difficult times, you know, during COVID and even during prior cycles. Um, and it was predominantly the case that we said, we went down the list. It was like mission, 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 all all of these people were mission oriented. Um, and so I'd say that that's, that's one thing that we really like to look for is, um, you know, who, how do you assess, people's motivation. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do is, is trying to make a judgment on a team. Um, But, but oftentimes what you can do is also look at, you know, who's building something to scratch their own itch. I mean, that that's effectively what we were doing. Uh, You know, we were looking around and we wanted to continue to support the space. We didn't have infinite capital ourselves. So we decided to go, how can we create something that, that can have um, you know, a bit more uh, firepower to uh, help contribute to the things that we thought um, needed that type of contribution. And when you find founders that are building their business for those same reasons, because they saw a problem, they saw a gap or, um, you know, there was a real need uh, and they you know they saw and they wanted to scratch that itch for themselves. I mean, that's already, a, I think, a good place to be out of the gate.
0: Yeah, 100%. How do you gauge or determine or negotiate even you know the degree of involvement that you have in portfolio companies like you know you bring to bear certain intangible uh assets you know how is that sorted out you know because obviously some companies and founders may want to leverage other you know benefits of partnering up with you guys and others may want to be very independent how does that get sorted out
1: yeah that's you know that's uh that's very much an open dialogue with the teams. Um, we we want to be flexible in the approach that we take, and as I said earlier, that every investment and every partnership is like making a bespoke suit. I mean, that is that's very much uh, part of how we um, you know how we pursue the dialogues with each of these teams to understand. What are they looking for? You know what are what are their preferences for um, the, the types of people they want to have involved in their business and supporting them at the board level or just as you know advisor or mentor, etc. And to what extent? How how involved do they want us to be? You know, in some cases, you have groups that 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 actually really want um, you know some type of close collaboration where we're talking. Very frequently, whereas others, you know, they they sort of prefer a more hands-off approach. I mean, for us, um, we we joke about this idea of uh, well, what you often see with um, fiat VCs is sort of a a very structured framework for how you know how do you organize governance uh, between an investor and a company and What rights do you have and what, um, you know, what protections do you have as an investor and how do you legally structure a partnership? Now, I come from the world of institutional investing and I know the value that there is in having, you know, some of these legal arrangements in place. And for sure, at the outset of any partnership, you want to have a mutual understanding with Mm -hmm. The founders and the team that you're partnering with, partnering with on how are you going to move forward together? How are you going to deal with situations as they arise? But, but also on, on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, we also think if it gets to the point where you're looking at some of these legal documents on, you know, what was agreed and what rights do we have in certain situations, you're probably in a pretty bad place. And right. um, you know, we like to think of you know, we're backing a team and, you know, it's almost just as much of a handshake as it is about the legal uh, arrangements. And for us, I mean, we, so coming back to what we were joking about, like I I was leading up to it, we talk about the Fiat VCs as having this very rent-seeking governance approach where it's all about, I'm gonna put these, this structure and these arrangements in place and we sort of want to do the opposite of that not to say that we're not going to have documents in place and and have a professional um you know investment organization that can uh, make sure that we that we're doing right by our investors but we also think that this is all about creating an authentic partnership with these groups and how do we do that at the outset we have very open dialogues about what are they looking for what do we think we can bring to the table we do think that the team that we have, the network that we have, and even the portfolio that we have, all of that can be additive to these groups. But some of them will want to uh, leverage that in different ways than others. Some of them will want to leverage it more than others will. And we're not here to jam any approach down the throats of the Bitcoiners. We want the Bitcoiners to go build the future that they want. And so for us, like our North star is Bitcoin. And so how do we, how do we approach investing and supporting these companies in a way that is authentic, you know, with that philosophy, because we, the last thing we want, the companies to think of us as, is just like a VC firm. Uh, we we hesitate to even call ourselves that um, because of the stereotype that comes with it. So, um, you know, that, that, that orients how, you know, we try to
0: do the opposite of what most VCs do. So, um, anyhow, Is this, you know, speaking about kind of the differences between traditional VC and what you guys are doing now, I mean, I'm looking at you and you're wearing a, magic internet money wizard uh, hoodie, right? So is is this more fun, you know, being in Bitcoin land? And even though let's say the mechanics of the work is somewhat similar to stuff you may have done in the past, I mean, how much more fun is it to be involved in something where one, there's so much mission alignment between investor and entrepreneurs, uh, but two, just the people you're interacting with and the excitement around a, a, a new emerging industry that's gonna be so influential in everyone's lives, or at least that's our thesis, I mean, what what are the differences there in the day to day, just kind of enjoyment of the process?
1: No, it's you know one hundred percent. I uh, I was already you know living and breathing everything Bitcoin for years and years. <laughs> I would come home from work and you know my my prior my priorities were family and then work and then Bitcoin. It was all my free time was going into Bitcoin and. Um, now uh, that's still the case, but I'm doing it you know, I'm, I'm now working in the field. And so what does it mean? It means I'm having a lot more fun doing, um, what I'm doing, uh, what I'm doing today is very similar to what I've been doing in the last 15 years, which is trying to, um, identify Well, first trying to build relationships with, with teams and founders and identify, interesting ways for you know for us to support and invest in great companies and during our investment period and ownership period is like how do we help them grow like that's what I was doing for the last 15 years in, in working the, the, the entire life cycle of an investment in that way but the alignment and the passion that I have in this space obviously didn't you know it, it wasn't the same in the prior world. Now, for sure, I I learned a ton in that space and I invested in so many different types of companies, everything from, you know, consulting company to retail business to um, business services, utility services, industrial companies. I mean, I've seen practically every kind of business model that exists, but when you're evaluating and trying to learn about a business that you don't care as much about, then you just aren't going to do as good of a job as as you would in a space that you're incredibly passionate about. So not only for me is it fun, I know for sure I'm doing a better better job in this space because um you know it's it's all I want to do. I want to spend as much time as I can uh on this, you know, outside of making sure that I have um you know a, a growing and
0: healthy family at home. Yeah. And hanging out with bitcoiners and that kind of stuff ain't so bad either, right? I mean, there's just such a you're operating on such a similar wavelength, right? Whereas in normie land, as it's called, you know, you're encountering maybe very different wavelengths from time to time. So I'm sure that's uh, enhances part of the the enjoyment of it all. Um, I I should have asked this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering: um, is it a challenge to to source deal flow, like because you know, is it, is it hard to get in on deals? Is there a lot of competition for that kind of stuff?
1: Um, you know, I would say, unfortunately right now for the space, um, I really do think that there's, there's still a scarcity of capital. Uh, we do need more capital coming into the space. We've written about it. We tweet about it. it's, it's, I think, recognizable to most people who follow the space. You know, every day you'll see a a crypto, individual crypto deal that will raise more money than I think has been um, deployed in the entire ecosystem for um, Bitcoin-focused venture capital. Now, that's putting aside, I mean, some people will say, well, that's not exactly true. Look at all the Billions of dollars that have been raised for miners. Uh, yes, I agree with that. There's been a lot of capital that's that's gone into secure the network and directed towards Bitcoin miners, and I think that's really attractive opportunities that 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 people have have gone after there. But every day you read about uh, a new fund, a new brand name VC that's raised five hundred million, billion, two billion. Same thing with crypto funds and. Um, I think, you know, as a result, there, there's just still is a real scarcity of capital um, to go around for Bitcoin companies. Um, you know, as it relates to competition, I, I would say, you know, I, I, I like the way that, that Jack Mahler's really frames this because people ask him about, well, what do you think about these other businesses that are plugging into Lightning and going to compete with Strike and he says, you know that's not the right way to look at it. The right way to think about it is this is an open monetary network and every single um business that enables lightning is going to make his business stronger it's going to make the network stronger and that's how I view the the others that are uh, investing capital in this space as well i you know I think we're all being additive to one another and if there's another fund that gets started to go after investments in this space, I think that's great. Uh, And, you know, we, you know, there's not too many of us right now. um, And oftentimes we're looking at a lot of the same investments. uh, And so, you know, there's, I think there's room for more um, because we need to bring and attract more entrepreneurs, more technologists into the space. And one way to help do that is by having more capital available to support, um, you know, founders with interesting ideas.
0: Yeah, totally. What, I mean, how, as a, <laughs> as a percentage, like how many companies do you, cause there's, there's still not that many Bitcoin companies, right? There certainly seems to be more getting started now, but how many would you say you assess in order to, you know, add one to the, the portfolio? Just as a general rule, um,
1: you know, I, there
0: it, it is true that
1: um, the ecosystem is still not terribly large. I mean, what if you had to size the number of companies? Would you say, well, maybe there's a couple hundred that could be identifiable and notable from people? Yeah, maybe, but then like it really narrows down pretty quickly. I mean, if you look on the opposite end of the spectrum there's only really a handful so far, again, putting aside the miners that have really reached breakout success and started to, um, you know, raise money in the, and have valuations in the, you know, hundreds of millions. And and if you look at even a billion plus, I mean, there's, there's a very small number there. Um, and so the investable landscape is still, um, you know, not, not terribly big. So what does that mean? That means that, um, likely the, um, the hit rate on the investments that you do relative to another space is probably going to be higher. But I also would argue that in this space, like if I compare um, the spectrum of what you might look at for a, a typical VC fund, and if you look at benchmarks on performance, and um, look at you know top quartile performance. What does what a top quartile performance VC fund look like? Is it you're generating three to four times your money uh, over the life of a fund, uh, and you've made, I don't know, 20 investments, 30 investments, uh, but you've made all of your return from one or two companies that were huge breakout successes, and then the rest of the investments you made, half of them wiped out, and half of them just sort of were mediocre, uh, returns, I think in this space, and again, this is sort of generic comments because we you, you have to be careful about what we say from a regulatory perspective. But, um, I think overall, just given where we are with this ecosystem and the growth that inevitably is coming, that there's going to be a higher success rate of companies in this space where, um, perhaps you have a fund or you have a portfolio of in- investments In the Bitcoin world, where you don't have to rely on one or two being home runs, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of um, breakout success stories here. And I think there's going to be a lot less companies that are wipeouts. Now, for sure, this is early stage investing, and people should understand the risk there. And there's always the risk that any startup is going to fail. And there's a higher likelihood of that than companies that have been operating for a longer period of time. But um, for that reason, you know, I feel very comfortable um, looking at this space and and thinking that there's um, huge opportunities on the horizon.
0: Yeah, inclined to agree with you. Um, I see, well, a couple of interesting things behind you, but one is former uh, former Fed chair, Janet Yellen, current treasury secretary uh, with Bitcoin sign guy holding up the buy Bitcoin, on the notepad behind you. Uh, and it makes me think of you know, the macro situation. And obviously, we're in very kind of uncharted waters. Very, uh, you know, it's, everything's very sensitive right now. And there's a lot of very unique and interesting forces at play. And I'm just wondering, to what degree, as a firm like yours, doing the work you do, do you have to be aware or considerate of you know, the macro situation? And to the extent that you are aware of it, what are your thoughts on what's currently playing out in the macro in relation to inflation, debt, geopolitical, long-term cycles? I think I see the fourth turning right behind that uh, photo. So what are your thoughts on the macro situation?
1: Yeah, you know, first uh, I'll give a shout out to Parker Lewis for that uh, picture of Yellen behind me, which he, he commissioned um, of the Bitcoin sign guy uh uh on TV that um but um you know of course we're very aware I think people in bitcoin are more aware of the macro than than most people um because it it you know bitcoin was really born out of uh, out of the, the the last crisis in the gfc um and so i mean it, it is the reason why we need bitcoin uh because of this you know corrupted fiat money that we have so you know do we follow it closely yes do we do we follow it out of necessity for our business i would say not necessarily um it's not going to change our philosophy one way or another um it we we do live in crazy times for sure um but uh for us we're going to invest, whether it's you know a positive cycle a negative cycle and and really just try to to support the the Bitcoin companies that are doing what we think is interesting, important work um so um you know it's it's something that I think we all have to be aware of because it feels like things are changing a lot quicker than they used to, and so um, you know, once your spidey senses really start to tingle, then you need to be prepared to, to act with the same level of swiftness.
0: Yeah. Do you, just one more question on this, but I mean, how, how do you think we, you know, this transition that we always kind of talk about from current fiat land to hyperbitcoinization, uh, most of us probably assess the situation, and it's, it's hard to see that there's not quite a bit of turbulence in that period. Do you have any specific kind of insights or visions on how you see that playing out, and if so, how you how you prepare?
1: Um, you know, I wish I wish I had a better perspective. I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't know. I, I think that it is important. For us to be prepared in every situation I, I was a i was a scout growing up an eagle scout and the motto was be prepared and so mm-hmm. you know you always have to position yourself for any outcome that could come and you know you, you hear a lot of chatter these days about mm-hmm. you know get your bitcoin off exchanges um and take self-custody of your bitcoin of course we wholeheartedly believe in that um, we need to be prepared for, um, you know, some of these these serious attacks uh, that could come to Bitcoin. That that a lot of people have been talking about for some time. You start to see um, some, you know, some some hints of of that stuff coming. Whether it's what you see happening in Canada or what you see happening in Europe, um, that um, you know the the situation, the macro backdrop can really start to impact. Uh, this ecosystem pretty quickly. And so, um, you know, thinking through what your individual threat vectors are, what your business's threat vectors are, and just running those scenarios, um, and, and having a, a game plan for, for when those times come.
0: Yeah. I almost hate to ask this question, but, uh, regarding the BTC price, you know, because that can obviously be affected by these macro machinations. Is that a consideration for the fund at all? And if so, um, do you do no, you have a perspective no, on it? No, not
1: really. I mean, we we hold Bitcoin ourselves. Um, you know, we we have the flexibility to do that. But really, this is not. You know, our our mandate is not to predict and invest and hold Bitcoin. Our mandate is to invest in, partner with, and support Bitcoin companies. We are big believers in Bitcoin so over time the the price is going up in fiat terms but also just like real bitcoiners we say 1 BTC equals 1 BTC and for us it's about how can companies position themselves to accumulate as much of that 21 million fixed supply as they can and so the price movements, um, you know, it will continue to be volatile. Of course, that's just um, um, as a result of how early we are, and as the knowledge about Bitcoin distributes, and more and more people come into the space that are less informed about Bitcoin, you might see it go up. You might see it go down. Uh, over the longer term, we think it goes up, and so uh, we don't care too much about price. We Focus on finding companies that um, we think will benefit holders of Bitcoin, and um, again, just try to do try to do everything with the ethos of Bitcoin in mind. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Speaking of independent thought, which we've touched on a bit, and I, I agree with you that it's well, it's an edge in any kind of domain, but I think it it helps people find Bitcoin earlier. And I think Bitcoin actually stimulates, you know, fostering further, you know, your kind of intellectual development because it kind of opens up a whole new world for recapitulating things that you thought you understood. And maybe now you have a new understanding and that leads to increased salience in other areas of, of your life and intellectual pursuits. And I see Leela's is another book on your bookshelf, which is a very interesting read regarding value, uh, generally, but, uh, Speaking of independent thought, I think I also see, and the image is a little bit blurry, but I think I see P. Call and T. Call, which are both interesting books as well. And uh, kind of curious uh, how that's influenced your independent thinking or thinking generally.
1: Yeah, you know, those are um, very fascinating uh, books. And I think that the people have looked at, at that field. You know, if you you look at the course of history, I think there's... A lot that people think they know. There's there's a tremendous amount. Like the more that we, you know, look at some of those fields, the more you realize how much we don't know. Um, and I was just very fascinated by by some of that stuff. You know, I used to watch, um, you know, some of the the, the shows that um, highlighted uh, those books, which is what what put me onto them. Um, but I think you know, as it relates to to Bitcoin and independent thought. And, um, you know, it, it, for me, I sort of, I I got into Bitcoin because I was interested technically, you know, I had the engineering background and I started to dig deeper and it made me question, well, what if, you know, what if there is this, this whole new technology that is going to be one of the biggest innovations? Yeah. I joke with my wife, like, this is the biggest innovation since fire. And, And, you know, she, thinks I'm crazy, but yeah, <laughs> I looked at it first because of the technical, um, the technical interest I had, but then it really did open my eyes to other things, it, and it made me actually start to question other aspects of my life, other aspects just about fields that I never found myself interested in before. Uh, growing up, I could never get myself interested in history i could never get myself interested in politics especially it just bored it bored me to death i never i i never thought that um you know any time a political conversation came up i just you know i you know my eyes glazed over but it wasn't until bitcoin that i realized actually okay well there's this whole other field you know there's these libertarians out there and austrian economics and you know what maybe i've been a, a libertarian my whole life and that's why i never was Interested in you know left wing, left wing, right wing, and it, it maybe it made me question some of the things I learned in college and and open my eyes to Austrian economics. And then you know you just start to question everything that you've been told, and whether that's about um, you know hallucinogens or whether that's about economics or whether that's about you know name name your field. Um, I think that. One of the great things about being in this space is is the people that you interact with, and the people that you interact with, I found tend to be very high signal about um, a variety of topics. And when you key in on a new idea that you haven't thought about before, it really gets you curious about, well, let me look into that because if there's a Bitcoiner who I'm aligned with from a values perspective and who's come to Bitcoin for, a lot of the same uh, reasons and, and values, then there must be a reason that they've also looked at this other thing and there must be something interesting about it. And so for sure, Bitcoin has helped been a spark that's ignite me looking at other areas in my life. And, you know, I, I mentioned the politics, but also history too, um, that have gotten me, um, more open-minded and interested to dive deeper. I do have a lot of books here and not enough time to go through them all, but, um, um, you know, it's it's been a very rewarding aspect of being in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, that's such a commonly said, you know, phenomenon for people that get involved in Bitcoin. And I think there's probably many reasons, even many of which we, we haven't really stumbled upon yet or haven't articulated well yet. But I do think one of them, you know, one of the easier things to point at is just when you realize how much, The base layer that is money influences the institutions that are built on top of it and then how much those institutions influence how people think and act i mean and you don't really you know you're the fish in water before you realize that but then once you realize that there's water all around you you start to look at it differently and then when you start to identify the attributes in the base layer that lead to those institutions and those behaviors and all the other things that it fosters then you start to think, well, what happens when you swap out the base layer? And what, what happens when the base layer has different attributes, incorruptibility and honesty and uh, immutability and these sorts of things? Like, what effects do those have? And it would seem to be the case, and we're, we're part of this unfolding ourselves, is it seems to instill a different way of thinking, and it seems to conjure up different institutions, and it seems to be coalescing a diff- like a, a, as a result of all those... Um, influence or change behaviors a different kind of culture and that's certainly evident in the Bitcoin space I mean it, it is very much a culture unto itself maybe a counterculture right now maybe maybe the dominant culture at some point in the future uh, but you know I find that aspect of of this phenomenon so incredibly fascinating how it's so powerful and profound at changing people's perspectives and opening opening them up to ideas and insights and wisdom that previously either they were shut off from or they didn't consider or they weren't interested in as you know as you just said it's phenomenal um two more and then i'll let you let you go grant what is one of the hardest parts about what you're doing now you know because it sounds wonderful right you're going to mix it up with bitcoiners helping foster the development of the ecosystem lots of potential for uh, financial gain in the future are there elements that you know that are that are difficult and if so what are some of the hardest ones for you
1: you know the the couple of things that come to mind um, one being you know you as a Bitcoiner, you know I, I want to see all of these companies be successful and exist and you meet founders and you build relationships and you know you want to support them all um, but there's just like that, you know, you have scarce time, you have scarce resources. There's also scarcity of capital, and so you can't do them all. You know, you have to pick and choose. You know, w- which ones make sense for you at that time. And sometimes it's you know you just you, you don't have the right uh, capital lined up at the time, or sometimes the you know the. The, the dynamic um, for for an investment is is not there at the right time, but th- that's a tough part. Is like, how do you you know not being able to to do as much as you want to do. Um, you, you know, you you do have to have an investor's mindset and think about not just what is you know what is the potential vision and opportunity of this company, but thinking about well. Doesn't make sense from an investment perspective. Um, you, you have to wear that hat too if you're going to be a fiduciary of investors' capital, and so you know that's that's something that um, is challenging about being an investor. Like you have to know when to say no, but that's something that I've been used to for for 15 years, and that's where investment judgment, um, you know, really comes into play. Um, but that's just something that you know for people who are thinking about getting involved in the ecosystem you know you have to you have to be aware of that um you know the other one is just from a personal standpoint is how do you maintain the right balance in your life i could spend 24 hours a day on this stuff but also i have a family but i also my family is also bitcoiners and i've developed really strong friendships um, with people in the space and people who've joined our team, and I absolutely love going to as many events with Bitcoiners as I can. Um, you know, last week I was in Nashville with the team. You know, that that's uh, that's that hosts that meetup there. I try to go to that one as often as I can. And if you go, you know, if you go to other um, other Bitcoin meetups and Bitdevs, you'll often find me there because I love doing it. I love meeting people uh but also i want to have the right balance with my family i've got uh two young kids and uh, a supportive wife and um you know h- how do you manage both of those at the same time um when you when you travel a lot it's definitely challenging so you have to to make sure that you know there's there's uh good communication and 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 when you are when you are there that you're present you're present with your family and Uh, You can shut off from Bitcoin. It's often hard for us to do because we dream about it and that's all we think about and it's all we read about. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that I'm I'm happy I'm able to do is just completely shut off when I want to and completely be present. Um, And then all of a sudden I'll wake up and remember, oh, wait, I got to, I have some other work I got to do, but, um, you know, enjoy time with family and friends for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with all that. And I think what a lot of us try to establish in our lives is bringing those other very important elements of our life into the Bitcoin fold, right? So that the the lines can become blurred until they're all just in in the same big soup. But maybe that's one of the downsides of an absolutely scarce money is that there's more pull to acquire it or engage in it than, you know, something that has an open-ended or an infinite supply. Because, you know, that scarcity maybe has that much more of a pull, at least from a financial perspective.
1: Yeah, um, and and you know the, I, I think it's just it, it's perfect in that having a scarce money, it, it aligns perfectly with having scarce time. And what we're all trying to decide is how how do we how do we spend our time? And you 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 do it in a way that uh, is is most rewarding to you. In the moment, but also in having this low time preference approach to, you know, investing your time and compounding your time so that it produces even more value in the future. And that's not just financial, that's in your family, you know, that's in your personal life. And so what it's going to do is Bitcoin is going to orient us towards really deliberately thinking about our time in, in a different way.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think what happens as a result of that is it has this effect of restructuring values internally. And what's really, really interesting, you know, kind of counter to the initial uh, image of like the crypto bros is that my obs- observation is a lot of people in Bitcoin, even if they've accumulated a lot of Bitcoin or have a lot of financial wealth, they end up, the, the things that ascend their va- internal value hierarchies are things like health and family and friendship relationships and time in nature and like those things that can't really be priced those ascend to the top and all the other stuff gets pushed down and it's really amazing that like that switch is flicked by just integrating this absolutely scarce emblem of your own scarce time into your consciousness you know it's uh it's another one of those rabbit holes
1: absolutely absolutely and you know one of the other things that (laughs) that I like to say is, you know, if we teach our kids about this, then we will guarantee, you know, that future, you know, my, my son, he's got an open dime. And if he does a chore, if he does something nice to his little sister, then he can earn some Bitcoin. He knows what Bitcoin is. He knows what sats are and he's in kindergarten. But if we, if we, you know, if we teach our kids this, then we can,
0: you know, create, create that reality for them. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, it's beneficial to bring your work home in many respects now, because the the ethos and the principles that are kind of inherent in Bitcoin are the same that you want to instill, like in your kid, for example, right? You want to instill honesty and integrity and responsibility and all of those things that kind of emit from Bitcoin. And so, um, you know, I guess maybe this is the, a great question to finish it off on, but in, in a lot of your writings on the website, you talk about, uh, the potential ability, and I obviously agree with you, for Bitcoin to unlock you know, human potential and human flourishing. So notwithstanding that we may be entering into a bit of a turbulent transitional phase, when you think about the future, when you think about a hyper-Bitcoinized world, right? how does it look for you? What are some of the, the hallmarks or things that stand out as what pulls you forward toward it?
1: You know, I think, I think it's going to result in everyone finding, you know, their true mission in life. You know, they 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 find out what can they contribute to the world, to others that benefits themselves, aligns with their passion and aligns from a value perspective. I think that so many people have been forced into um you know certain situations certain careers just by necessity of of what a poor foundation have money of money has created and i think the the maximum potential of humanity can be unlocked once everyone can you know, pursue their passion in a way that is not corrupted by a, a a bad base system and so i think that human flourishing to me is uh, allowing people to pursue those, you know, what their dreams are because of, 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 of what their passions, you know, what their passions allow them to to pursue.
0: Yeah. I think that's very well said. And I, I think that's one of the, the tragedies of having a base layer that places people in a relative and in many cases, perpetual state of deprivation whereby they have no choice, but to pursue kind of the Paths that have been laid out for them, and as a result, they never even get to ask themselves the question of what is most valuable to me and what should I be pursuing. And what what and what I find interesting about that is, of course, once you have your own bedrock security—that is, Bitcoin—that nobody can dilute, nobody can take from you, then you know, kind of the more of that you have, the more you're able to ask that question, the more you're able to extricate yourself from, let's say, the the fiat path and enter into a fresh one. And I think we're our cohort are the ones that are kind of saying like, well, we were never in our education system. We were never taught to investigate or ask ourselves those questions. So it's all pretty new to us in the future. I think, you know, whether it's your kids or their kids or whatever, it's like part of their education will be having more clarity about their values. And as a result, what motivates them and how to orient their life around them. But for us, we're like, Hey, we're getting freedom now. We don't know what we don't really know what to do with it. Right. Because we've always just been kind of put through the meat grinder of industrial education and been like, here, be a lawyer or be a doctor or be a this and not to disparage those those professions. But we were never really confronted with the question like, hey, you've got pretty much as much freedom as you want, especially if, you know, around the values that we've been discussing. How should you what should you pursue as a result of that? And it's going to take some time to figure that out because it's by no means an easy answer to say hey what do you find most meaningful in life and therefore what do you want your life to be about you know it's a lot harder than just saying okay well i studied uh you know math so i'm going to be an accountant now
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely but that i mean it uh that is one of the more exciting things to see you know i'm relative to the bitcoin space and you know when i um you know when we meet with companies or members of our team, or just people in the space, I I often feel like the older guy. And when I see some of these younger people who've gotten into the space as young as they are, I just think, wow, like how incredible to find Bitcoin when you have so much of your future ahead of you. But I mean, think beyond that, just you know, some of these younger 20 year olds who are already so deep in the space, but even beyond that, like the kids these days, just like you're saying, who are going to have the ability to really think about what do they want to do and what's their passion. That, that's not an easy thing to, as you say, not an easy thing to find, but it's really exciting to think about the potential that that can unlock.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's not just the wealth, you know, I, I said, you know, fiat system kind of because of the surreptitious time theft, let's say it puts you in a state of constant deprivation, but it, that's one aspect of it. But I'm sure we both know 100 millionaires and billionaires that are miserable. and But if your wealth is in Bitcoin, I mean, you may not have anywhere close to that, but the felt sense of freedom and the, the clarity that dawns on you for orienting yourself toward the values that actually animate you most that actually kind of inspire the, the you know the extraction of the best from you you know to maybe use somewhat of a cliche term but that is felt that sense of freedom is felt more by someone who has like a few hundred thousand dollars in bitcoin than than the fiat billionaire and it's really so even though i think of course it's it's, it's uh beneficial to anyone to have a base layer of financial wealth so that you have more options in life there's something and maybe many things inherent in bitcoin that instill something even you know, like a far greater sense of freedom to pursue what's most valuable yeah
1: for sure there there's this tangible feeling of sovereignty that you have in that case it's not it doesn't it doesn't seem too dissimilar to me of the the tangible feeling of satisfaction that you have like what you guys talk about when you're streaming sets and you're giving, you know, you're contributing sets back directly to someone who's creating content that you value. There's something tangible about the feeling that you have in doing that. Just like there's something tangible in in the feeling that you have of your own freedom
0: and sovereignty by holding Bitcoin for sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a hardcore hodler with the, with the best of them, so, I hate to spend Bitcoin, but I was down in El Salvador recently, and I think I've said this on the show before, but you know whether it's buying a dinner or or whatever, it feels good to exchange bitcoin for a service like one, it makes you make sure you're you really value what you're getting in return, but you also kind of know inherently you're not passing on a debt to someone you know you're not passing on someone a, a liability basically you're passing on something something onto someone that you really tremendously value and it just feels like a more respectful type of exchange you know and maybe it's good that we're, we're gonna on the cusp of having more of that in the world yeah absolutely um Brent, this has been awesome man. i appreciate you taking the time and you know illuminating me on what you guys are doing and uh, i really think you guys have an awesome approach to it and i'm sure you'll be met with a lot of success in the future um any final words or anything you want to get off your chest before we shut it down
1: Just just thanks so much for having me. Uh, Really enjoy your show. Uh, You do great work. Excited to be contributing in our little small way to the ecosystem. And we're going to keep doing that block by block. People, if they want to find us, I'm sure they can find us uh, on our website or on Twitter.
0: Awesome. Are you going to be in Miami in April? Yes. Definitely will be there. Sweet. Well, we'll have to hook up with that. Find me at a beefsteak near you. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there. All right, man. Appreciate the time and uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop. After a conversation like this, I get super excited thinking about the types of products and services that will emerge in the future through the amazing and driven entrepreneurs in this space and the support of investors like 1031. If you'd like to hear more from Grant, follow him on Twitter at G-R-A-N-T-G-I-L-L-I-A-M-B-T-C and visit 1031TEN31.vc to learn more about their awesome work. Don't forget that if you send Boostergrams to us in your Podcasting 2.0 app, you can also include a message that will show up on the applicable podcast episode page of the ct.io website. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.